This recording is a production of Faith Builders Resource Group. This recording was made at REACH 2017, held on March 23 and 24, 2017, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's supposed to introduce me, but um, I'm, th- I'm thinking there are six minutes here that could just be wasted. So I'd like to, would anybody here like to tell me who you are and why you're uh, interested in a, uh, a class like this? You want to. <laughs> Uh, I saw your name was on it, and I said I was going to take it. Because it oh, okay. All right. You have a reputation, I guess. Uh, that's, that's scary. That's what I oh, my. Okay. Uh, anybody have a reason they're taking this on uh, non resistance of the gospel? Or that one that you can articulate? Yes. Yeah, I'm a missionary, and I spend time trying to explain non resistance in a third world country, and that's. Uh, difficult topic. Good, good, okay. Well, I'm a historian. I'm going to do it a little bit, this today is going to be a little bit more on the history side, Um, but I am going to talk about how the Anabaptists rediscovered uh, two things, two two very important things, and (coughs) non-resistance fits in there. I don't know, that might, it might uh, give some insight, Um, but we'll, we'll see. Anybody else? Want to say something to me? I think it's uh, uh, oh, go ahead. You you start talking, and we'll come back. I think it's something that's pertinent to our world today, and and um, you know, I think it's something that other people are curious about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of peaceful people out there, but they don't really. It's just straight up peace, and, and they're not sure. When you talk about numbers, just that really sparks your interest, and I think it's a pertinent issue um, that our world really wants to know about. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm uh, very similar places with the man over there shared. Um, I've spent some years in third world countries, and I just wonder how to share that, and I'm getting ready to go again. So, okay. Just wanted to hear, see what I can learn. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I most of my life I've been a teacher, and so I have, and I have done some mission work. I. I, uh, when I was very young, I was in uh, Germany with a tent crusade, um, and uh, this topic came up there. Um, uh, Germany's probably an easy place to talk about this because they've been, uh, um, they've caused so many problems <laughs> with wars, and so they, uh, they tend to see themselves as people who are against war. Anybody else? Yes. I, I want to understand it better in my personal everyday life. Okay. In, in, in a lot of different ways. And, and that is something I think that I'll be able to help you with, I think. Um, so, anybody else want to give a reason that you're interested in uh, a, a breakout like this? Yes. The con. <laughs> The concept of non-resistance is so foreign to the generation that we're working with. Oh, and I would, would who are you working with? I mean, which which uh, young people? Okay, which mission or where are you? Uh, it's it, it, it's a Bible club in Stratford, Ontario. Okay, and they just you know it's just retaliation. That's that's all they know. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I would like to give them insights. I won't. I'm not going to say anything about this in my uh, in my. Uh, talk, but that makes me think of something. I used to uh, work with a jail ministry in Reading, Pennsylvania, and um, went to a city Mennonite church there, and <clears throat> I taught eighth and ninth grade boys, if I remember right, whatever that age group roughly, eighth, eighth and ninth grade junior high boys, and maybe half the class were from traditional Mennonite homes, and the rest were from Reading, uh, and not from traditional Mennonite homes, and um, I can remember two classes that they were really interested in. One was um, around Easter time. Now, I was, I was born and uh, raised Catholic, and so uh, I, I know that uh, at, at Easter, there, there, at least there used to be, I don't know if they still do this or not, they used to show three movies at Easter all the time. And, and uh, so uh, anyway, these kids, one, uh, one of the Sundays just before Easter, were all excited, the, the city boys. And I, wow, this is something else. It's not the lesson, but who cares? And they were talking, and all of a sudden it registered. Ah, they saw this on, they saw those movies that come up every, 
every uh, Easter time on the TV. And um, anyway, it, uh, one thing I learned was the, the impact of, of the visual and watching movies or TV. Because uh, at one point they said, uh, Jesus, he fell down and this woman wiped his face. And then his face was on, on her uh, veil. And that's a Catholic legend that, that uh, this happened. So I tried to explain to them, well, the movie is partly from the Bible, and there are some legends in there, too. No, no, I saw it. It happened. Okay. <laughs> so this is very, that's a very powerful medium. And the other, the other class was um, on non-resistance, and it was specifically on non-resistance. Oh, it was so interesting to hear those boys talk. You've got to be crazy. I'd be murdered, <laughs> which is probably what you're, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, it's time for me to stop <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to all of you. Obviously, you've been getting to know our speaker already, but I'm excited to introduce him a bit more. If you don't know already, his name is Stephen Russell, and he currently serves as an instructor at Faith Builders Training Institute, a position he's held for 18 years now. When Stephen was converted, the Lord made clear to him that killing was wrong for God's people. And over time, this understanding of non-resistance has grown fuller. Studying church history at Wheaton was a part of that, and on his own, further study on his own, and they've helped to give him significant insight into this topic. And it's something that he cares about deeply. Um, he cares about it enough to have written a book about it. Check it out upstairs in the bookstore after the session. But for now, please give him your full attention. Mr. Russell, the time is yours. Okay, and you can pass those out. Um, and like I said, yeah, why don't you give uh, just one session as well? Well, I hope so. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, before I start, I want to make clear that if I say something uh, that is either unclear to you or that uh, you, for some reason, have a, a need to ask a question, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, we're not really, I, I really like to have a lot of interaction. And uh, the, this uh, breakout is meant as a, a chance for me to tell you some things. And then, uh, but not so much for questions. So uh, if you do have questions, though, I'd, and especially if there's something that seems to be unclear, I would really appreciate it if you would um, make that uh, known. Because others might be having the same kind of uh, problem, not understanding something that I'm talking about. The uh, session summary in the uh, booklet that you got uh, for, for today and tomorrow says, what connection does non-resistance have to the gospel? As Christendom disintegrates around us, we Anabaptists have a unique opportunity to awaken other Christians to the truth of non-resistance and to point inquirers to see and seek or seekers to a more holistic understanding of the, of the life God offers us in Jesus Christ. This session will show the importance of non-resistance as it, its place in the gospel message and encourage our outreaches to recognize that fact and not neglect teaching non-resistance. And, and as I said, I uh, trained as a historian, and I'm going to approach this mostly that way. I haven't done nearly as much um, outreach as uh, probably most of you have, although I have experienced some of that. and. Uh, and so I'm hoping that I can give you some background information, maybe some uh, basic uh, understandings for why we are a non-resistant people, and, and maybe a little warning, too, about uh, the Mennonite church lost this. And um, we, I just, that's something I desperately don't want to see happen with us. And, and as um, Carl mentioned, uh, when I became a Christian, the first two things that happened, I knew that God wanted me to serve him, and I was a young Catholic boy, and so I actually went to seminary a bit uh, to become a priest. But then later on, I found out I'm already a priest, so I didn't need to go finish seminary. But anyway, and the other thing was, this was during the Vietnam War era. I was in the last draft, and um, I, my number was way low, so that it, in, in and of itself, it wasn't an issue. But before that was known, what, what number, where my number would be, I gave my life to the Lord, and I knew at that point it's not right to kill. 
And so I thought, what will I do if I am in, if my draft number is high enough? And I thought, well, you love your country, you obey the law, I'll, I'll be drafted, but I just won't, sh I won't kill anybody. And as Carl mentioned, in, over time, I've, uh, I've uh, through various means, uh, deepened my understanding of what, um, Christianity, uh, what God calls us to as far as non-resistance is concerned. So all of us here have a similar aim. We're looking at spreading the gospel news and the, and the kingdom. And there are uh, probably divergent views here on many, many subjects, and that's good. It's good to get together like this and hear those different views. Uh, you might not agree 100%, but yet even the place where you don't agree might stimulate your thought and help you think about a particularly new possibility, and that in and of itself is good too. So this, this, op this setting gives us a really good opportunity to do that. I'm excited about that. I feel that this concept of non-resistance has probably been undervalued uh, among our people. And now I might be wrong on that, but um, I know when the Gulf Wars happened, a lot of people in my setting, a lot of the young people in my setting, didn't really know much about non-resistance. I think what happened is that when the draft ended, a lot of the ministers um, inadvertently, they didn't mean anything by this, but I don't think they preached on it as much. And so you, you don't exactly, you do absorb things, you do. But uh, something like non-resistance, I think it takes a little bit more than just abs absorption. You need to also hear why we're doing this. Um, why do we sometimes uh, suffer loss rather than uh, take advantage of, let's say, the court system? Why do we do that? Well, you got to explain it. It doesn't... Uh, automatically makes sense. And so I think because of the fact the draft had been ended um, when I was, uh, let's see, what was I? I was uh, 20, I think. Um, because of that, so that's 43 years ago. Uh, and, uh, but at the time of those wars, that would have been, let's say, um, roughly uh, 30, 30 years or something like that between and we weren't hearing the gospel we weren't hearing the in the preaching we weren't hearing uh, non-resistance uh, as as much as we should have now I want to um, recognize that we have some magnificent examples among our missionaries uh, who have done this and demonstrated what uh, non-resistance is but as I'm as I just said I think we also have to uh, get it in our own heads what is this why is it um, and then, then not just live it, but also be able to help the people that we're winning to the Lord to understand that this is actually not just something strangely Mennonite or Anabaptist. It is actually part of the gospel message. And, and that's what I want to try to help you uh, see. And um, in my notes, I just have, oh, years back, there was a, a, there's a, a brother named Ken Miller and some other men who um, were attacked in Kenya, and I think they demonstrated by their response a non-resistant um, understanding, a real heart understanding that they had. So I'm, I'm not saying we're not doing it, but I am concerned that perhaps like the old Mennonite church, we might lose it inadvertently. And in fact, like I said before the, the Gulf Wars, I think we were already on that path, but I believe the ministers have awakened, and um, I, I, I hear more preaching uh, of that. We also live in a remarkable time. Uh, this time is a time when church and state and church and society are starting to separate, or maybe not starting, maybe they have pretty well. Um, the United States didn't have a state church, well, at least not since 1833. But um, we did have a society that, that looked at the church or churches like this. We, we got to work together, church and society. So in some ways, we actually had um, a semi-church state situation. This is a remarkable time where that is that has or is disappearing. In Europe, where there really were state churches, those are either being uh, disempowered or they're um, actually uh, being, uh, dis the two are being disconnected uh, at this point. And in the United States, since it wasn't a formal situation, it's, it's just informally starting to, to unravel. I think that's wonderful. Is that happening in Canada? Yes. Good. Um, 
I, I think, I think uh, well, you'll see, you'll, you'll hear a little more about what I think about that. Um, so it's also a remarkable time that we can uh, put forward something that's inherent in our own tradition. And, and, uh, but we've got to be convinced and we've got to be committed. Uh, at, what's the final outcome of non-resistance? I mean, the final outcome if somebody actually pushes you in a corner, what's the final thing? Think back to our, our history. Martyrdom. Pardon? Martyrdom. Martyrdom. That's the final outcome. It's gotta be a commitment. You've got, this has to really be something you accept. Now, most of us are not going to experience that, I, I imagine, but we can experience increasing uh, persecution and problems. So we do need to, um, we really need to be convinced and we need to understand. Also want to make clear, I'm not rejecting influence from other traditions. Um, I was raised Catholic and there are a lot of things that I still do and believe that are clearly because of the way I was raised and I'm really happy about that. May sound strange to you, may never heard anyone say that. Um, I am thankful for the influence Protestantism has had on us in this sense. We had, we were the original missionaries back in the Reformation days and we had it crushed out of us by persecution. Well, now, in the last hundred years or so, we've started learning this again from them. So we have something to be thankful for there. Uh, I'm not putting them down, but I do think that as we've done that, there's at least the possibility that we've shortchanged ourselves and our own tradition, and perhaps not adequately ask ourselves how, what is the connection between the gospel and non-resistance, and how should it be um, worked out in a, a new setting, a setting in the city or a setting in an overseas or wherever you would happen to be, where the people that you're working with aren't actually um, from an Anabaptist background. From an Anabaptist background, we have a, we have a little bit of an uh, advantage. I mean, it, it, once again, we have absorbed something. And so uh, I think our own children are a little bit easier to, um, to work with. Uh, but I don't know if that's always the case or not. Uh, it, it often takes a lot of um, talking and convincing to get people to realize this is really um, what God expects of us, what he really wants. So let's, let's receive what we can from our Protestant brothers and sisters who have helped us relearn mission, but let's not forget um, what is at, right at the heart of who we are as a people, and, I, and it's really at the heart of the biblical message of the gospel. <clears throat> and um, as I was uh, looking at the, um, the verse, uh, that we have for for the uh, this um, reach 2017. Um, I, I really enjoy Habakkuk, and I thought that I'm just going to say how I think that this applies to this particular um, breakout. Um, the prophet in now this is not the verse that was quoted. I don't think if I remember right. Uh, but in Habakkuk 3, he talks about what do you do if you are faithful to the Lord and then it doesn't seem to work out. Uh, the olives and the, the wheat and the, and the trees, they don't bear. Um, but does, what's that mean? Well, you still remain faithful. And, and the application I would put here is that um, if this is gospel, if this really is part of the gospel, the issue isn't, does it work? But what does it mean for us to be faithful? And we don't always see the immediate outworkings of our faithfulness. And uh, it's something we have to, to um, ex accept. And in fact, the whole book of Habakkuk was written at a time a lot like ours, a time of disintegration and lots of questions. When, as the, the combination of church and society in the United States falls apart, and as church and state falls apart in parts of Western Europe, people don't know what they should believe anymore. They are yearning for something, but they don't know what to believe. And that's the kind of time that Habakkuk lived in. It, it didn't seem quite right. God was using a wicked nation, the Babylonians, to, to um, uh, chastise his people. And Habakkuk could not understand that. But um, 
there's some, uh, so we live at a, they lived at a time of disintegration we do. I think um, that uh, we, we have to recognize too, maybe for our own young people, as, as the culture becomes destabilized and plunges deeper into uh, iniquity, um, maybe a lot of questions will come up for them. Is this stuff real? Uh, it's pretty dangerous. It, it may become more and more dangerous even here for us to be Christians. The other thing, though, that I saw in Habakkuk is um, that the, this is where the, the Lord tells us that the just live by faith, which is such a big thing in the New Testament. This is where it is. And so Habakkuk is told by God the just live by faith, even in a time of disintegration. Uh, and so we need to recognize that the just man lives by faith. The, and you really need to know that at a time uh, of, of, now it was worse in Habakkuk's time than we are experiencing yet. But I can imagine um, that we might get into some situations like what Habakkuk experienced, but, he, but God also told him the evil will c collapse eventually. So uh, there, he gave him hope. He told him to, to be the just person. The just lives by faith. And then this is the verse I believe is, uh, this, this is one of my favorite verses. The, I think this is the one that's uh, the, the motto for this uh, year. And it's about the knowledge of the glory of God is going to fill the earth. Now, two times before this, it says in the Old Testament, the, the, uh, um, the glory of God fills the earth. One time in Numbers 14 and one time in, I think it's Psalm 72. I, I, I'm a little bit uncertain about the number. But in, in, uh, in, in both places, what it says is that God's glory fills the earth. Do you see that? Do you, what, what do you, you have a wry look on your face. What, what are you thinking? I think we see it, but it's hard to sometimes recognize ah, what it is. Good, good. Uh, we are believers, and we see it to a degree. And as we grow in faith, we probably see it more and more. But in a disintegrating time like this, it, it's a little hard sometimes. Do you think worldly people see it? They see it a little bit. They look at nature and they say, wow. But then they look at death and they look at they're treated unjustly. And they look at war and whatever else their problems, oh, they come. One of the big problems nowadays is how many people come from broken homes? Uh, that's the glory of God is filling the earth. It doesn't feel like it. So we live at a time like Habakkuk, but God said that there's coming a time the glory fills the earth. As you become a Christian and deeper and deeper into that, you see it better and better. Uh, but I agree with our brother over here that uh, don't always sense it completely. And sometimes the feelings are real rough there. But the knowledge of the glory of God is coming. Um, that's the job that, that missionaries have is going out there and making people aware of what God has done in this world through Jesus and helping them to see, see that this is the, not, the glory is there. What about the knowledge? We have a struggle with it. They're going to have a struggle with it too. But the, the knowledge of the glory of God is growing. And one of these days it's going to fill the earth. So I'm pretty excited. God will vindicate himself and his people. Uh, that's, the, that's what I get from, uh, from Habakkuk. But let's, um, let's move on. I want to talk, first of all, I want to give something that I give my students, uh, an overarching theme of the Bible. <clears throat> and it includes that, the glory that's going to be a part of, and I have this on your handout. Um, as I see it, the overarching theme of the Bible is God's purpose in creation was to establish a kingdom of perfection in which his glory, which fills all of creation, although we don't always see it, would be recognized and made known by his many sons and daughters who have been remade into and conformed to the image of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Um, God spent a couple thousand years in the Old Testament shaping a, a people that he had specifically chosen so that the Messiah could come. And the, finally, the Messiah did come. We live after that time so that we live when um, God has worked in such a way that his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe, his son has come. And this son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's from Hebrews chapter 1, 2, and 3. Uh, so 
Um, Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God's glory. We live in a time when it's actually possible to know uh, the, uh, the glory of God much more fully. And so let's take advantage of that opportunity. We have an awful lot that they didn't have in uh, the Old Testament days. But one of the things about the Old Testament is during that time, God either overlooked or um, only restrained certain problems, even among his own people. And one of those would be divorce and remarriage. Um, it's very clear. Jesus it makes it very clear. This wasn't God saying, do this thing. Read, read the text, by the way. Uh, it depends on your translation. But it says, if you divorce or when you divorce. And then after that is the restraint to protect the woman. And it does some of the same things on, on um, our natural inclination when we get hurt. Now, if one of you came up, now I, let's put it the other way. If I came up to one of you, one of you young strapping men and hit you, what would, what would you do to me? And forget you're a Christian for a while. <laughs> I want a young guy to tell me. Okay, you'd punch, one guy told me once, you'd be on the floor, okay? That's our natural inclination. It's in every one of us, I would say, because we're fallen, but it's in every one of us. And it doesn't go away just because, not, yeah, it doesn't go away just because you become a Christian. So, um, but that's, that's the other one that I wanted to point out. In the Old Testament, we are told not, God knows that they weren't at the place where they could hear, turn the other cheek and love your enemy, and even lay down your life for your enemy. So instead of that, he starts to restrain them in the Old Testament. And does it, anybody know, uh, there's three places where the same concept is given in the Old Testament, and it's a restrainer. Does anybody know where the Old Testament restrains, pulls back those wild horses that are trying to go, you know, and knock the guy down, and, and God restrains, restrains the guy? How does he do it in the Old Testament? He doesn't take us to loving the enemy yet. I'm talking about eye for an eye? Yes, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, he's probably gonna hit me harder than I hit him. And God is saying, don't do that. You can at least learn, even an unbeliever can at least restrain himself and just take advantage of, of you know, if you, if you bruise me, I can bruise you. And so that's what the Old Testament did. <clears throat> but in the New Testament, we have uh, the fullness of God's um, uh, revelation in Jesus and in the written word. And so uh, we find out that uh, divorce and remarriage um, and things like the church and the state working together, which always involves coercion, always involves a certain degree of violence. Uh, those are not, they were done and allowed to a certain degree in the Old Testament. They weren't promoted. They weren't said, God didn't say, okay, I like this, do this. But he, but he allowed certain things, he, he, um, but he restrained. He restrained. Well, we live in the New Testament. Jesus has come. The apostles have clearly um, called his people to a life that reflects the life that Jesus lived while he was here on earth. And one of the key aspects is non-resistance. So we're gonna consider that, especially in the history of the church. In the early church, <clears throat> um, and so I'm talking about the first 300 years or so, there is, uh, this is my area of study, so um, either I'm a liar or you can trust me on this. There's practically universal um, uh, acceptance of the, of the idea that a Christian uh, doesn't go to war, doesn't take people to court, whatever we put under that label non-resistance, that is universally or almost universally accepted. Uh, all of the writings we have, there are a few places where it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, I don't think in, the, in that first 300 years there's anything that isn't ambiguous. Uh, now, some, some people will point to there apparently was a group of soldiers uh, in, the, in the Roman army who were Christian after 170. And um, I would argue that uh, when you look at everything that the, um, that the uh, leaders of the church wrote, that there's probably a, a, a very good way to understand what happened here, and that is that um, 
that the, um, the church found itself in a, in a pickle, if you want to say it that way, because over time, some of these soldiers are going to see Christians who are laying their lives down for Jesus, and that's going to affect some of them. And there's actually a church, um, we could call it a rule book, that dates to about the year 200. The church had a, um, an instruction class like, like we do, but it was longer, usually lasted three years, and it was because so many of the people were pagans and they wanted to make sure that they had, they understood what they were getting into, that they were really committed to Jesus, that they really understood this. So for three years they were trained. In this uh, rule book, it's called the Apostolic Tradition, it says, and it was written about the year 200, it says that if a soldier wants to be in the instruction class, or the catechumenate uh, is what they called it, if he wants to be in the instruction class, he must promise he won't kill anybody, even if he's ordered to. What would be the outcome of that in the Roman army? The most successful army in the world because it had a lot of discipline. If you tell your commanding officer, I'm not going to draw my sword, uh, what's going to be the result of that? Death. So martyrdom, we heard that already, that death is the final outcome of this in some situations. Okay, um, it says in there as well that if you are a, an upper class person, you must uh, withdraw from the army or from a governmental position because you may have to judge uh, a, a, a capital case, a capital case being one where the person who's being accused might lose his life. And, and, and the um, upper class could withdraw from the army because they were the officers. The lower class couldn't. So I think the church, it doesn't say this in the document, but it fits with all the information we have that all of the leaders said, don't, uh, don't join the army, don't fight. And, and yet there are some who uh, were in the military, but we also have a document which says that if a soldier wants to join uh, the church and the and instruction class, he must promise not to kill. Those that could withdraw the upper class, they, could, they were usually the officers, they could withdraw at any time they wanted, and they could also withdraw from a, a political position. And so they were, it was said that they must withdraw or they cannot be in the catechumenate, they can't be in the instruction class. This is because of non-resistance. Now, uh, so I'm just saying there are, you know, somebody can bring up, ah, oh, we know there were some soldiers after seven, uh, 170. Well, we do, but let's bring in what, the, what this um, uh, instruction about how to bring people into the catechumenate, let's bring that in to the uh, understanding as well. Well, um, before I go on any further in history, um, the early church was doing what they saw very clearly outlined in the New Testament, and that's, that's, uh, that is that there were two kingdoms and two tasks. And I have, uh, I have those on your, um, on your outline. The first, the church has a king, is, a, is part of God's kingdom, and it has a task. And the task is given to us in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore go and, number one, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, number two, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. The Christian or the church's commission is number one, woo people into the, into the kingdom. And I use that word on purpose. Um, who can tell me what that means, woo? Inspire. Uh, okay, okay, that, that could, where do we usually use it though? There's a married man back there. You, you unmarried guys, listen to this. I wasn't putting it in married context. I was thinking more to draw. Yes, but, but, but where do we usually use it? It's usually what you did what to your wife before she was your wife. I was dating her. Apparently, you're looking for wooing. You may not have, but that's what the, that's the original use of the term. Woo! And did you uh, were you rude to her? I tried not. Okay, and I, I still yeah, well, that's very good. You should keep on wooing and dating your wife. Okay, and and we Christians should keep on being non-resistant too. But anyway, um, I use that on purpose. Uh, we're supposed to woo people into the kingdom. Uh, it hasn't always worked that way. There were times when some people would conquer an area. 
and, and require people to be baptized. Uh, thank goodness that doesn't happen anymore as far as I know. But we're to, we are to woo people. We're to, in other words, we're to show them. I, th I think this is the first place we ought to go, that, that this thing is what they want. Didn't your wife really want to marry you? Yeah, and you wooed her, just to let her, let her know that. Okay, people really want the kingdom. They don't always know it, they don't always understand it. We're supposed to woo them. Now, uh, if I'm stepping on somebody's toes, if somebody uh, starts with hellfire and brimstone, forgive me, but that's how I see it. We're supposed to woo people into the kingdom. And fire, fire and brimstone is a part of it too, but I, I, I would uh, rather see someone come in because they said, this is what I want. Anyway. And then number two, we're supposed to teach them the all things. And this would include, um, this, or, or disciple if you want to use that term, this would include non-resistance, I would, I would suggest. The other kingdom is the kingdom of this world. And it also has two proper tasks. And there are a couple places where we could read this. We could read it in Timothy and in Peter and in Romans. And I chose 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And there are two commissions here as well. And in the other passages as well, Romans 13, 1 to 7 is another one. It's the most, most popular or best known about the, um, what government is supposed to do. God's commission to the world is to restrain chaos by means of coercion if necessary. And so the, uh, the government passes laws and it, uh, and it always has behind it uh, a, a, a fist that it can use. The other one, though, it also does try to encourage people to good behavior for the sake of the, of the good behavior. It tries to convince us that if we would just do X, um, if we wouldn't pollute the stream, we'd all be happier. And, uh, but then it does fine us if we don't. So that's, once again, the, the coercion. But um, so both of these kingdoms have two tasks, and they are mutually exclusive. You can't do both of these at the same time. The same person can't do both of these at the same time. Unfortunately, and the early church, the early church got that. However, after the early church, um, so we're talking about from after three or four hundred, uh, as more and more people became Christian or at least Christianized, they tried to do both. A very interesting little thing happened in the um, in, in these days. A lot of people still knew it's wrong to use violence if you're a Christian. But the Roman state brings peace. So a lot of upper class men, very interestingly, would either join the government or they join the military first. Then at a certain point they'd withdraw and then they'd join the catechumenate, the instruction class. Because that it still made a lot of sense. It start, it's going to start to fade because you can't keep that up. You can't keep up. Well, I got uh, when I'm a young man, I'm going to be in the military, and then I'm going to leave, and I'm going to be a peacemaker the rest of my life. It doesn't, and and over time, indeed, the, this concept disintegrated. But an even bigger issue was <clears throat> that over over time, more and more Christians wanted to baptize their children, and the church gradually allowed that. I believe the last record we have of an adult born into a Christian family but baptized as an adult in Europe was around 1100. Do you understand what I'm saying? So from about 200, 200 they were, some people were doing it, were baptizing uh, infants. And by 1100, so this is, uh, this is 900 years time, it dies out. Uh, 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 adult baptism by, uh, dies out. The baptism where I make a decision that I want to follow Jesus dies out by that time. And so you end up with what we call Christendom, where, which is this attempt to bring these two kingdoms together in a way that they never ought to be brought together. And so uh, they try to support each other. The church and state try to support each other, but they corrupt each other. The church rather quickly moves from young men living their, uh, living, doing their military <coughs> service and then getting a little older and then leaving it and never picking up a sword again, to the just war theory. The just war theory was a um, rationalization that even Christians can, if they have the right attitude, if you go fight in love, 
the right attitude, then, then you, the Christians even can fight. So it, it went to that, which is what is still taught by almost every church in the world. Uh, there, there's a small group of peace churches that don't teach that, but it's a very small group. Most churches say that there is a proper time to pick up the sword. One of those would be in self-defense. Now, that's a place we gotta th- you got to think about it. Uh, that's, that's pretty, uh, that, that's one of those things that we really have to wrestle with, but we, we won't get there yet. <laughs> um, and the, the, it, it corrupted both. The church was corrupted because it started to um, teach things like the just war theory, and eventually that became the crusade. And there, you, there was one way to know you're going to heaven for sure, and that's if you die fighting or you die going to fight. If you didn't reach the Holy Land to fight the Muslims, it was okay, you intended to. So, um, so it went from Christians shouldn't fight ever to, well, before you get baptized, you can do it as a young man, to, well, there are right times we can defend ourselves, to taking the cross, the, the, a crusade. If you ever hear anybody talk, talk in history about taking the cross, they put a red cross on them somewhere, on their back, on their shoulder, on their front, and they were taking the cross. And if I saw a person in, in the year 1200 with a cross on him like that, especially if he wasn't a clergyman, then I knew he was going on crusade, and that's the guarantee he's going to go to heaven. And I see I have 10 minutes, so i got to speed up a little bit. Um, it also hurt... The, the state, because now the state starts to dabble in theology. Wonderful, wonderful. I would just uh, love for President Bush or President Obama or President Trump to uh, give their opinions on theological issues. Well, anyway, no, I wouldn't. Uh, but, the church, but this is what happened because of this. And then the state started ex- uh, imprisoning and executing heretics. At first, the church said, no, 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 don't do that. We don't mean that. But then after a while, they said, well, it kind of works. So uh, it, it, everybody gets corrupted. Everybody gets corrupted. Um, now, the Catholic Church never totally lost non-resistance. They just shoved it into the monastery and into the clerical class. And so monks and nuns and priests weren't supposed to fight. But the rest of us could either fight just wars or go on crusade. Also, uh, definitely a corruption. <coughs> After about a 1,000 years of this kind of thing, uh, the Reformation comes along. This is, by the way, so this is uh, 500 years ago exactly this year that the Reformation starts. 1517, this is 2017. So uh, exactly 100 years ago, the Reformation started. Um, and out of that Protestant Reformation, a rather small group came along called, uh, or a little movement came called the Anabaptists. Uh, they uh, rediscovered something that the early church knew that's in the New Testament. They rediscovered two things, and maybe I'll speed it up a bit because of uh, that guy back there flashing cards at me. Um, They rediscovered, this would be uh, on the back of that first page. First thing they rediscovered is, what is the church? Okay, for over a thousand years now, we've had babies that's the majority of people in the church were baptized as babies. And do you know what that's going to give you? Anybody know what that gives you? If you baptize babies? False security. False security, exactly. Not, not, I'm not, I wouldn't say that nobody really gave his life to the Lord, but I'm already Christian, so I'm okay. Um, I still pay attention to what's going on in the Catholic Church, and about in the 1990s there was a bishop's conference, and at the time I was living in D.C. and uh, in the Washington Post, uh, one of the bishops said, I'm trying to figure out why there's so many pagans in the pew. And I told the people I was living with, I said, if I were there, I'd raise my hand and I'd say, I can tell you why. It's baptism. It's infant baptism. And the early Anabaptists put their fingers right on this. Um, Michael Sattler said, this is the chief abomination of the pope. Because all the other stuff comes out of it. If you make people Christians by making them, by, by baptizing them as children, you're just asking for all kinds of trouble. So this really is the heart of the issue. 
And so the Anabaptists rediscovered what the, uh, how the church is to come into being and what the church is supposed to do. Now, I forgot to write little arrows. So where it says underneath of, uh, authority or keys, it says preaching the word of God. There should be an arrow up from that preaching up to no and down to yes. And then from the yes, you should have um, an arrow to baptism and an arrow to uh, the Lord's Supper. So from preaching to yes and no, and then from baptism uh, from uh, yes to baptism to Lord's Supper. I forgot to put that in. <clears throat> the early Anabaptists rediscovered this. This is absolutely biblical. And I'm going to go really quickly. You can, you can figure these things out for yourself. But you, it does matter when you baptize. You've got, there's got to be the preaching first. And uh, they, they, they saw that they heard it in Matthew. 28, and then they saw it in Acts, exemplified. That first there has to be the preaching of the word, then there has to be a response, a yes or a no. A no doesn't matter if you've already been baptized, you're out of the church, you're not in the church. If, it's, if you have come under conviction, etc., you can see those things, then you will ask for baptism, and this baptism brings discipleship, it's the answer of a good conscience before God, it's commitment to God's people, it's a willingness to suffer. The early Anabaptists almost always saw that. And to show the new love that this community, this is a new community. You are baptized into a new community. This is a big issue today. I'm sorry, but baptism and membership in the church go together. This is real. This is a community. You are part of something that disciples you, and then you show that in the Lord's Supper. Then, this last thing, they recognized that sometimes something would go wrong. And you had to, in love, you had to show the person that either they, they, they had fooled us at the beginning, or they're, they're, because of the fear, they're backing out of, of their commitment to Jesus. That's the first understanding. What makes a Christian? It's, you've got to, you've got to have uh, preaching. And then the second thing was, um, okay, uh, boy, I don't have enough time. Um, the second thing was, I'm skipping some stuff here, um, separation unto God. And, and there's a reason for this. Every one of us is born walking away from God or crawling away from God. So we're all going this way. That's where God is. What happens when I hear the word? When I hear the word preached, I, I thought you guys were missionaries. What happens? <laughs> well, you're jumping the gun a little bit. Well, and you're jumping the gun just a bit. You start thinking. You start thinking, and you might repent. Repentance is not being sorry. That's not what it means. It means rethinking. So I'm going along, and this guy is preaching to me, and I'm saying, wow. I never heard that before, but I think he's right. That's repentance starting, okay? And so finally I said, I'm gonna, he's right. What do you do then? Somebody jumped the gun. Turn around. Yeah, you turn around, that's called conversion. Now, I'm marching this way, at least if, I'm re if it's real. I'm gonna ask for baptism. I'm gonna be part of a group that's discipling me and we're going this way. What's the result of that? What's it gonna feel like? Everybody else is coming this way. I'm going this way with a few other people. Like a salmon. Pardon? Like a salmon. You're going, you're going against the stream. It, it'll hurt. It'll be irritating. Uh, you could even get mad sometimes. But they'll get mad at you. Okay. This is these two things are tied together, and I'm going to. Uh, uh, unfold a little bit about what separation is in just a second. These two things go together, hearing the gospel, responding to the gospel, repenting, turning around, going against the stream. That is separation unto God. We, we were not born, I don't care what home you were born in and how well you were trained, you too need to, you're still going this way. Uh, you know, your little kids that, um, that uh, find all kinds of ways to get into trouble, they, they're, they're, they're uh, showing that. But you, you, you know, you, you've got to turn around. You may have fewer scars than the person who was born in another setting, but you have to turn around too. Okay, now what are those? Look at um, the, the separation unto God. 
the heart of the biblical message is this, that when you hear the gospel and turn around, it means separation unto God. And as I have thought about this, I think there are three aspects at least to uh, separation. One is nonconformity, one is non-accumulation, and one is non-resistance. And I think that guy's going to put another uh, thing up pretty soon. So I'm going to um, really go fast on this. <coughs> um, when I talk to people about this, they hate those nons, non, non, non. So one day it hit me. These, these are, there's a positive term for every one of these. Nonconformity, the, understood correctly, is faith. I don't mean conversion faith. It's the faith that says, I trust God. When I turn around and go this way, I, st I still need faith. And that faith says, I trust God. I don't need to do weird things to be accepted by this big, this is what the world is doing. They need, they need acceptance, they do weird things. Okay, um, and our traditional things are part of this, but I think maybe we don't get it broad enough, deep enough, and, and all three of these. Now, a, third, a second one is non-accumulation or hope. I would love to ask you the question, where, do the, where, where does the average American or Canadian put his hope? But um, he's going to throw, bring another thing up there. Um, it's in our purse, our pocketbook, our money. <clears throat> and um, so non-accumulation doesn't mean I don't save money and start a business. doesn't mean I don't save money and build a house. But the question is, where's your hope? And where is your security? Are you protecting yourself by building a big wall in the bank? You're in trouble. That's not separation. Um, and then love is non-resistance. And it's not just I don't go to war. It is a life directed in trust to the good of others. I am willing to die rather than destroy the image of God in others. And now I am supposed to quit. And there's a, I don't like that. And um, I just want to tell you, uh, you can come, come to my uh, display anytime and we can talk about uh, this stuff more. But I just want to really quickly say this. I think we have an opportunity because, as I mentioned at the beginning, society is disintegrating and the, con the connection between church and society is disintegrating. I think we have an opportunity to talk to our brothers and sisters who are Protestants and Catholics and get them to see this, that they, that yes, I, I'm not saying they're not following Jesus, but if this is right, there are some very key things that our tradition gives us. I don't know if we're getting it, um, and, and, but I, I want to awaken us and ask us to think about this. But also, I think this will attract, and I know, I know a lot of people are gonna have trouble with this, but I think a lot of people at, who aren't believers as they see this, as they experience it, as they see it in you, I'm going to tell you a real quick story. I'm going to maybe, uh, he's going to maybe put another poster up that I don't want to see. But anyway, um, uh, when, I, when I wrote the book on non-resistance that I did, uh, I was in Israel, and it's when the nickel mine uh, uh, killings happened. And that radiated throughout. I was, I was in Israel, and I was reading online. I would read American newspapers and European newspapers. And of course, I, I saw Israeli newspapers. And, I, and, and uh, you would not believe how this radiated out and people said, what's going on? What I'm telling you is this, that a, a life that's truly, <laughs> that's truly separated will attract, it, 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 sometimes it's just, it'll, it'll, um, it'll repulse at first, but over time it attracts. And I, he's put this unsmiley face up, so I'm gonna quit. <laughs> Thanks for your attention. I, <laughs> I wanted to say more. <laughs> well, oh yes, you're supposed to talk now. This recording and many others are available from Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. For more information, call 1-814-789-4769 or visit us online at www.christianlearning.org.